Hi, this is Max Tanev and welcome to Brains Bite Back. The podcast that explores the relationships between psychology, technology and societies. Today, we're diving straight back into the topic of ethical user experience design with the second installment of the two-part series. In this episode, I speak to Valentina Berois, a principal UX designer at digital transformation company Intiv. Valentina describes herself as fiercely passionate about anything that sits in the intersection of creativity, technology, and business strategy, which is exactly why she has found herself working in UX design. We dove deep into the realm of inclusive design and had a really interesting discussion about why digital products need to have cross-cultural design to be able to have impact and how this can be achieved. We also explored how UX designers can build accessible products that cater for users with a diverse range of needs, how these solutions often end up being useful for everyone, and how UX teams can build a mindset of inclusion into their foundations. Disclosure, this episode contains a client of an Espacio portfolio company. This episode is brought to you by Publicize, a digital PR company that grows businesses' online presence. And for a limited time only, exclusive to Brains Bite Back listeners, you can receive an SEO assessment as part of your package for any tier of service at no extra charge with this special promotion. To find out more, visit publicize.co slash BBB. Okay. Hi, Valentina. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. So in this episode, we're going to talk about two kind of broad areas of UX design. We're going to first dive into cross-cultural UX design and then later on touch on inclusive UX. So just to kick things off, can you tell me what is cross-cultural UX? All right. So it, it basically refers to how designers need to consider cultural differences among their audience for a specific product. So we UX designers always aim to create to create a product that causes a pleasant emotional reaction in order to generate an enjoyable memory. Uh, However, emotions are subjective and diverse because of cultural differences, of course. And as a consequence, uh, cultural differences in UX design are often considered only as theoretical exercises. So user experiences are embedded in a specific social and cultural context, including associated emotions, expectations, and individual preferences. So for user experience designers, uh, these contexts are difficult to anticipate as they're biased by their own culture, whether considering uh, cultural differences as crucial to design better products in globalized markets. So uh, basically, um, it's everything that is uh, defining what for me is normal and perhaps for another person is not because we live in completely different cultures, but complying by different norms as well. Okay, yeah, interesting. And can you dive a little bit more into the specific biases that arise when UX designers are are designing products? So a cultural bias is a phenomenon of interpreting uh, and judging phenomena by standards inherent to one's own culture, right? So for example, when I think of someone's behavior is inappropriate for a situation, but I'm using my own culture's norms as a measuring stick and not theirs, that would be a cultural bias. Uh, so it has been shown that around 98% of our thinking is, in our, is done in our subconscious mind. This is where we store our implicit uh, or unconscious biases. Unconscious bias is a result of the brain working automatically to make decisions without thinking. 
program to make quick decisions, the legacy uh, of our survival instincts, let's say. This results uh, from the brain deflecting the moments that are familiar to us and to what we know. These biases um, represent themselves in the systems and the signs being created. Uh, so unconscious bias exists in many forms, including race, gender, culture, age, and religion, for example. As creators, it's our own responsibility to be aware of natural bias and to make design decisions so that we can better connect with and design for a wider audience. Okay, and just kind of touching on that point that you mentioned about the responsibility of the designers to account for these biases, are there any specific values that UX designers must take into account to make sure that their design is cross-cultural and applicable to the, the cultures that the products, where the products will be launched? Yes, of course. So uh, diversity is inherent to how we design. It's in the people we hire, the clients we work with, and, and the products and services we create. Every time um, we tackle a new design problem, we need to first make sure we understand our audience. And if we don't, we need to make a conscious decision to learn about them, validate with them, and think from their point of view what really interests them. Uh, so there's a couple of key points in that uh, as for the strategy on how to achieve this. Uh, first of all is awareness, realizing that this problem does in fact exist. Uh, like we need to do with everything that uh, regarding the human evolution, right? Uh, as soon as we are aware of something that is not completely right, we need to start changing it. Uh, if possible, uh, test with an international market. So conducting usability tests will catch pain points in different demographics and cultural contexts. I know this is a lot to ask if there aren't resources allocated in the budget for this, but this is truly invaluable. And you could provide a very strong business case as to why this matters. So um, third, you need to localize copy and content beyond a one-to-one -one literal translation. So lots and lots of things get lost in one-to-one -one translations. Have you ever, for example, been in a foreign country and solidly relied on Google Translate? So yeah, that doesn't work that well, right? Uh, localization captures cultural references either uh, languages, grammar, as well as words that don't exist in other, in other languages. So, for example, there is no yes or no equivalent in Chinese. That's the first thing I can think of, but it, it happens in many languages. You sometimes don't have a one-to-one -one translation available, and you need to actually find out what's the actual way to say the same thing with a different word. Uh, and fourth, the most important as well would be a flexible layout. So some languages, once you translate them, uh, they have longer words than the language it was being translated from. So that's, I have a very nice example here in Germany. We have really, really long words. So if you're designing something in English and then we translate it to German, we need to take into account that the space available for this word will be enough and that it will not break the whole layout of my design. So this is very important to keep in mind in, the, in those regards. Okay, great. So you've outlined really nicely that the values that UX designers must keep in mind. What sort of methods are they using, you know, be it kind of different research methods or ways of ensuring that their, their design is in fact cross-cultural? Well, you need to take many, many uh, different factors into, into account. 
But some examples of, of this in action, let's say in real life examples, I would like to say, first of all, uh, I can think of is uh, with voice assistants like Alexa and Google Home. So in my case, for example, I'm not a, a German speaker. I am a Spanish English speaker naturally. So um, every time I set it up in German, which is not my first language, most of the commands I don't recognize. So because of my accent, of course, uh, neither Alexa nor Google are necessarily racist, but the conversational interface has been programmed with unconscious biases, assuming that all end users will speak and sound the same. So uh, for sure there, they are missing uh, research in regards to what their user, their objective users are expecting and how is their day-to-day -day lives. So we have many other real cases that I'm sure everyone knows about. Like, for example, 40 years ago, the color film was designed to work perfectly for people with white skin only. And it wasn't until the 95 that Kodak introduced a, a color film that catered to people of multiracial uh, skin colors. Uh, so today we have mobile cameras and social media filters exhibiting similar biases with several examples of people with dark skin not being recognized and other racial insensitive charges being discussed in the media. This is naturally because no one tested this tool with people from different skin colors. So it's very straight to the point. If we don't get to know our users, it, it's all about research. It's all about research. It's all about testing. So if we don't test our products in a broad audience that we know could be using potentially our product, how are we going to know if this is fitting them in the same way that it fits us or perhaps the most known user that we have around us? So in this sense, there are several ways, but straightforward, you need to do research. You need to get to know your user. You need to get to know the broad audience of the user. It means that where is your product going to be supported? If you have a product that is going to be supported over in, in over 40 countries, like the last project I, I was in, for example, you need to get to know over 40 kinds of users and probably more because there is not one kind of person per country. But you, of course, need to uh, bring down to ground, okay, you need to make a profile, a generic profile of each one of them and uh, make a concise persona, you know, taking into account uh, the way they live, the differences with between each other right now. And it can be a very, very exhausting and, and, and long process until you are at the point in which you are actually sure that you are knowing what your users are expecting and how to make your product successful in the end for everyone. Yeah, that's really interesting. And like when you say about how you had to create a generic profile for over 40 different users from 40 different backgrounds. What kind of research does that entail? I assume that you're trying to have as much contact with those local communities as possible. Can you tell us a little bit about how you go about that process of um, creating those profiles? Well, yeah, mainly we don't always have the resources to be in touch ourselves with them, but we always need to have someone that is our connection in that country and can give us the true insights. And from our side, specifically, what we do is it's a remote user testing because we cannot be traveling the whole time either. And some companies don't have the budget for that either. So uh, the last time in the project I was in, we used a tool that is called Maze Design. And you simply 
uh, have a, a user testing prototype that every user would actually interact with, answering some questions and following some orders. And then you get a full report analysis knowing exactly how they interacted with the product, where they hovered, where they were, where they were confused, if they completed the, the tasks that you gave them, uh, how fast they did it, uh, or how slow, how effective, or how ineffectively. And this is how you start taking some conclusions, right? And differences between them, and establishing an actual persona for each one of the areas or profiles. We are not even talking only about country specific, right? We have a lot of other things to take into account like uh, gender, religion, uh, disabilities. It needs to be an inclusive design, right? And this basically takes all in. It means that the product has to be for everyone and not for some people, not for some people that are the most common or normal ones which is badly said, of course, but it, it has to actually cover everyone's needs and, and it has to uh, accomplish that in order to be successful. Otherwise, it's just uh, the most simple thing that you can do. And uh, a product also, also measures its success upon the number of users. And if they are returning to your product, uh, if they are not just visiting once and living forever, so um, that's the hardest to, to, to get, you know, a retention of the users. And if you don't give them a pleasant experience, they will not return. So it's a matter of being really open uh, to it and listening. Listening is key. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's obviously so important in terms of like companies being able to launch their products in certain cultures and countries and being able to retain users, like you said, but I think just ensuring that users have an experience that they can relate to and that's relevant to their own experience, like you mentioned before about different apps or, or whatever, not recognizing certain skin tones or different voice assistants, not recognizing certain accents. That's such an exclusive experience for someone to have to go through that I think it's, you know, it's not only a matter of being able to retain users, but also just providing an experience that is inclusive for everyone and doesn't doesn't leave anyone out on on the basis of of like yes, race or gender or skin color. It's very hard. I mean, it's it's also very easy for us to fall into stereotypes, you know. Which, when you fall into a culture stereotype assumption uh, to define user experience, uh, it's above all incredibly offensive and discriminating. And this is our main responsibility as well. Um, so we have some examples that are known for everyone, like um, some typefaces, which is like typographies, fonts that everyone is familiar with since we're kids. But when you see uh, an element, a graphic element or a font type, sticking to this example, that looks like a certain country or culture, you need to be extremely suspicious because that's the first sign that this is a stereotype and that we could be falling into some really offensive and discriminated situation. So um, there is a font, for example, that was released in 1923 that's called Newlands, and it has been since then used for American, African focus advertising. So this carries heavy connotations and stereotypes of cheapness, ugliness, tribalism, and roughness. And you still see it everywhere, even today. It's used in posters for movies like Tarzan, Jurassic Park, and Jumanji. So movies about jungles, uh, wildness, and scary beasts lurking in the bush. 
this is all Western symbolism for the continent of Africa. So you can even see that whether this typo is available uh, for sale or download, it includes tags for like Africa, jungle fever, primitive. This is totally unconnected to anything else in the product besides the racist, racist history itself. So um, this you can see a lot as well with countries in Asia. So we need to be very, very careful. There is an ethical responsibility from our side that we need to start acknowledging and taking care of and taking responsibility. And yes, we need to do a product for everyone, but we need to listen to those users and we need to get to know those users. It's, it's not enough to go and Google certain look and feels from, from some cultures and try to comply with that because we can get to the complete opposite result in the end. So if we offend the user, they will never come back to, the, to your product and you, you are going in the totally opposite direction to offering a good user experience for those consumers. Absolutely. And that is really shocking that the example that you mentioned about the different font and how loaded it is. I, yes. I mean, that's an, that's an aspect of UX that I hadn't even considered could be culturally insensitive. But now that you describe it and all of the connotations that come with with that specific font, that's obviously something that UX designers or people in general could easily not necessarily associate with the, the meaning behind it. So yeah, it just goes to show how important it is for that constant level of education and, and, and being in touch with the real experiences of, of different cultures, not just the perceived ones. Yes, some, some current examples that I think we are at the moment, at the, at the clear moment, that this is changing and all the main companies are doing it is for example when we fill in a registration form for an account anywhere email whatever and it asks you what's your gender so and you have just two options woman or male and there are many countries out there like germany for example which has a neutral option so it means that the person doesn't define either for a female or a male and that's totally valid and we need to respect it and we need to give the user the option to mark that. Otherwise, we are making the whole thing very uncomfortable for him and he will no longer feel part of it, you know, and we need to make him feel part of it. We need to make him feel that this was tailored for him, no matter where he comes from or who he is. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. I think that's, you know, especially when it comes to gender identities, that's something that needs to be really pushed forward because there is a lot of backlash against those at the moment. But um, yeah, I think the UX designers definitely have a, a, a strong level of responsibility when it comes to, to things like this, because they're obviously accessing and creating touch points that are accessed by, by so many, so many people. Okay, so just to pivot a little bit, I want to ask you about some projects that you've been working on recently that incorporate cross-cultural design if you have any cool examples you want to share with us so for the for the the project i mentioned before which was an actual uh, project for vasf which is a um, product from the family of sarvia it's basically a smart assistant for farmers right and farmers are everywhere in the world so we wanted to provide this product and make it accessible for everyone so that means that you need to know the profile of over 40 countries kind of farmers and in countries like India, for example, which is so huge, 
and you have so many states and each state can be even considered as its own country. It's really specific the way the users behave, the users, uh, their customs, the, the way of working every day. And this is what we need to get to know. So, for example, to, just to take some, some key uh, learnings I got from there, from India specifically, uh, we had to make that the language selection was totally independent from the country selection. This is because we found out, uh, thanks to our product owner that's, that was actually sparing with them uh, in some of his trips, that most of these people are using their, their smartphones. They have their smartphones set it up in English, even though they don't speak English, but it's just some custom that they took over. Uh, they don't use it in Indian, but they like to have the possibility to have it so if they want. So this is something that we have to relearn. Uh, country selection doesn't go hand by hand with language selection. And this is something I can totally relate with because I'm not living in the country where my mother tongue is, is spoken, right? So I speak Spanish and I live in Germany and I even speak English mostly on, on a daily basis. So I love to set up my tools and my products uh, of daily use in Spanish, ideally, sometimes English. And I, have, I like to have the possibility to set it up in German as well, but all independently from the place I found myself in at the moment. So this is just one of the little things that is not so little. And the fact that if you don't make that, then the users are not going to be able to use your product at all. Because if you set it up in a language they are not familiar with, upon their location, they will get into your product and they won't be able to go anywhere because they won't understand anything, not even to go and change the language to another one. So you need to make sure that's the first step of all when the user is open in the app, for example, this, is, this was an app for iOS and Android. And this specific persona we had in India was very, very differently from a persona typical of a farmer in Brazil. Indian farmers are really small. They are their own companies. They usually don't have employees. They only hire someone when they actually need more help because the, the demand has grown or something but on daily basis, this is not fixed. And these are people that go into the, the, the land every day and manually check the issues that are going on. And their land is completely scouted manually. So walking through the lands, right? They don't have any tractors. They don't have any big machinery. But when you go to Brazil and you check the typical farmer, they have a huge extent uh, land that they manage. They have biggest um, machinery that you can find and the latest technology. They will not even be walking through their line. They will be perhaps checking other people that work for them and are doing that, but mostly on tractors because there is no way you can walk through that. So the usage that they are given to the tool is very, very differently from the Indian user that is most probably getting our tool firsthand and doing it by himself. Probably the Brazilian guy is giving it to his employees and he would like to check what they are doing um, or the results of it, right? But we need to make one product that fits both of them. So this is the biggest challenge there. You cannot uh, go more to one side or the other. You need to satisfy both in the same measure. So um, 
in that sense, uh, we had quite a few challenges, I need to say, um, even from visual design perspective, because Indians, taking this example that we already have, what Indians like, or actually they take uh, most pleasantly when they see some, some visual graphic, they are more eager to go for plenty of colors and really bright colors and uh, that it really stands out. And if we check users like, for example, Germans or, or more Western um, European, let's say, they will go more for uh, a lot of white space structure and not so much uh, through the side of colors, but through a way that they are looking to have good contrast and a good usability, easy to actually uh, interact with. So um, these are two, just to take two examples. We actually have with this product more than 2 million users around the globe. Um, there were over 40 countries supported. They are not even the same. Of course, this is about farming apps. So there are not even the same crop support through each country because not every country has the same weather, the same soil. So they don't plant the same. So we need to have different things in mind and there's no way we can throw one product that would fit them all. There is no way. This would be a complete failed project, you know? Yeah, that's um, that's so interesting that not only you had to take into account the differences between the different countries, but then also like within India itself, how you mentioned that it's full of so many huge states that in themselves could be considered actual countries. And I find it also really interesting when you spoke about the different visual cues and, and and visual elements of design that different cultures find attractive and engaging yes. and I think it is really it's yeah definitely really cool when you kind of look at different the like the different web pages or different versions of apps yes. that are launched in different countries and how vastly different they are um even like the the different colors that have different associations and um in across various countries, like the the color red, for example, I remember reading that that has such different connotations depending on which country yeah. you're yes, in. Totally. And the other important thing to keep in mind is that there is a very thin line between stereotypes and actually getting to know the culture. So the important thing is not to make any assumptions. Even if you make some research and you see that perhaps some uh, cultures are more eager to like this or that, the best to do is to make a proper research at the moment and get up-to-date results because we cannot trust our history in this sense. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, and then I want to now move on to touching on inclusive design specifically. Can you tell me a little bit about what inclusive design encapsulates? So accessibility, basically inclusive design means everything, right? What we were talking about and accessibility. So accessibility in technology often means ensuring people with disabilities are included and that certain legal compliances are met also. So uh, however a product means that it's usable by as many people as possible, including those with disabilities. It comes down to the same bottom rule as cross-culture and design that there are no two users that are exactly alike out there. So this refers more specifically to, to physical and cognitive disabilities, as well as environmental factors, which can inhibit people from fully engaging with technology, which is basically hardware, software, and beyond. So um, inclusive design is a methodology. 
Accessibility is one of the core objectives, and it involves understanding the spectrum of, of human ability, right? As well as respecting their individual preferences as being and being mindful of the barriers to, to digital access. Designers, like we said, often rely on personas, right? To understand their users' needs and, and motivations. And designing from the perspective of different human abilities can help spark innovation in creative products that work for everyone, like we were saying once again. So this is not a completely separate topic, but it, this is more focused on not where the users are coming from, but within each of those countries, you will have different abilities and things to cover, which we are not even talking about only physical disabilities or cognitive or motor, because some disabilities are, are even coming and going through everyone's lives, right? Um, if, if you have an arm injury, you won't be able to use your arm for a while. And this doesn't mean that you are going to have to stop using the tools that you're using every day. You should be able to keep doing so without any problem. Or if you have a kid and you have him uh, grabbed on your arms the whole time, uh, ideally, you should be able to keep doing the things you used to do before. So um, it's not only restricted to, you know, uh, physical disabilities, but a bit more wider than that. We are talking here about making products accessible for everyone, no matter what, really no matter what. It's just uh, very broad. So to be more concrete and, and just to mention one of the many possible existing impairments for like, we can focus on low vision users. There are a few no-nos that make their life really difficult when using a computer. And I, I like this example of vision impaired users because I was one in a conference, once in a conference from Google and an actual employee from Google with vision impairment gave, gave a, a speech, a talk, and he actually showed us how he used his smartphone every day. So it was kind of like a firsthand experience, uh, seeing what are the differences and everything they can actually achieve if you give them the right tools and the right ways to do so and that you, you cover their needs as well. And they can have a really exactly a pleasant experience in the same way that you and I can have. You just need to take care of some other details, like the text cannot be resized. Then if, if it would be impossible for them to, to actually read through if they have um, actually low vision, not actually blind people. But even if they are blind, you have many, many tools to, to support that. For example, you can set your phone so that you, when you are passing your fingers over objects, it tells you what it actually is and it reads you an email or whatever. But think about this. If I make uh, every feature accessible only through an icon, an iconography, and I don't put any text behind those labels, this person will not be able to know what the hell is happening, uh, sorry for the language, <laughs> in that screen, because it will not be readable for him. So we, have, we need to think about uh, machine intelligence and, and AI and the power that this, that this methods can have, but uh, it needs to be done right. Otherwise, if we don't support it with what it needs to be to actually achieve its goal, 
this is from the UX side, of course. This we are the ones to decide how we make elements and this if these are readable and accessible for absolutely everyone or just for the people who can see or listen or any of the other differences we might have on the daily lives. So other things to take into account would be to have insufficient color contrast uh, so or busy page backgrounds. And this is not only for the low vision users because there are people that are older in age and they also have difficulties to read or or to process information in the same way with the same focus with the same clarity and it's really hard for them to focus when we put a huge animation in the background of a website for example and it's taking all the focus and they don't process information in the same way a very young person would do or a teenager for example which they can process really fast and they can multitask in a way that not even I can do at this point of my life. So um, this is about in inclusive design, right? So uh, we don't need to assume that, that vision impaired or blind people aren't able to use the product or the internet. There are many ways to enable them to effectively use a computer or a smartphone. So as we said, the screen reader that you have uh, on most out of smartphones out there which is within the, the standard features uh, in the accessibility settings. So the bottom ground is that UX researchers need to work with people from all backgrounds and with a variety of abilities in order to understand what matters to our users in their daily lives. So based on these insights, we need to aim to design products that are inclusive and consider the needs of all users out there. Yeah, I think that's a really important point that you make about how inclusive UX design doesn't just benefit people that might have those physical or cognitive impairments, but they're actually beneficial to everyone at certain you know points in their life yeah. or at even certain stages in their day. I think something that I've noticed a lot recently is like short videos that get put out on social media virtually all of them now have captions um captions to the audio of the video and if you're out in public somewhere without headphones or if you want to watch something and you can't set, turn a sound on then that's really useful for you know to be able to know what's going on in the video and it's not it's not just for people that are hard of hearing but it's actually useful for everyone so i think that's yeah there's some really great examples of how inclusive ux doesn't just benefit yes. those communities but actually everyone Yes, and machine learning and, and artificial intelligence are really helping us out with that. We just need to keep them on the right track because, of course, that depends on us. But, for example, nowadays uh, on every or almost every video on YouTube, you can have subtitles that are automatically generated. And this is a big deal for, for people with hearing disabilities. And we are actually beginning to use our technology right in some ways. Uh, but there is so much more that we can do. And this is just the beginning, I think, in this sense. Yeah, absolutely. So kind of in the same sense as I asked you how uh, UX designers really get into cross-cultural differences and, and manage to create successfully cross-cultural products, how do you think UX designers should be approaching creating inclusive products in terms of the techniques and methods that they use and the values that they, they abide by? Well, I, I encourage you, all designers out there, to, to first of all, get informed about all of the little details that we need to take into account, which are a lot, not to say all of them. But you need to open, be, be open that it may happen that all of them 
are inflicted, you know? And there are some generic elements and features we can point out, like the font usage, color usage, forms, settings for, for accessibility, right? What we were talking about, uh, language selection, location, uh, visual structure, navigation, color usage. Um, but there are some strategy tips for every designer out there that would be kind of like a good way to start, right? So you can attend talks and meetups to learn from people who are accessibility experts in a certain geographic region or thematic area. Uh, these are nowadays, mostly with the COVID situation, almost everything is done remotely as well. So I'm sure you're going to find tons of options. Um, when conducting your own user research, expand your sample to include participants with disabilities. This is a key uh, must, I would say. So over a billion people worldwide have some form of disability nowadays and a sampling strategy that represents the population will help you build truly useful products. There are some local communities, organizations uh, or ONGs that can help you to connect you with people with disabilities. So an international effort to include diverse participants will help improve your technology for everyone. So like we said today, if travel is difficult, you can always use uh, remote research tools to gather feedback from global users. My recommendation as for remote testing, which we are not, we are not sponsoring them or anything, but I really had a nice experience is there is a tool that is called Maze Design and it actually lets you share your prototypes for testing remotely and it returns you with a huge and deep analysis of, of how that interaction went. You can also include diverse representation in your application like race, uh, clothing, physical ability and social class. You need to pay attention to the details, of course, as they speak for themselves, right? Um, so for if you have some kind of visual illustration on your website or product, do you show also left-handers uh, or only right-handers? It might seem pretty vague uh, or something that no one would notice, but prothesis on, on personas, like to take a really realistic example nowadays, uh, do you, if you make a person inside of a supermarket or if you visualize them inside of a tra public transport, you need to put a face mask on them because right now that's our reality and that's what everyone will relate to at the moment. So these things are also changing the whole time. We are evolving as human beings and we are being more open to, to change and, and to define ourselves uh, no matter how people around us are, are behaving or, or feeling. So it's really important to pay attention to current situation generically and individuals and their feelings and their own definition of, of their personas. So before we, we define a persona, we need to know how they define themselves. So um, it's good to learn about local design and embrace the aesthetics you, you find in your apps, visual language and imaginary. So translate to languages your users are most comfortable with reading. So test various languages and text flows in your app uh, interface. For example, Arabic takes more vertical space and it's rendered right to left. So that has a huge impact on your app and mainly on your visual design as well. So these things are uh, these are all things that you need to take into account. 
So uh, always try to keep your sentences short, and provide graphical cues to guide non-literal uses and people with cognitive disabilities. So combining text with images, such as written menu with clear icons, enables easier and faster access across all literacy levels. And also, you would need to avoid complex hierarchical uh, structures, such as menu, tabs, or drop-downs, as users are more likely to get lost. Plus, those who access your app with a screen reader might need a long time to find what they're looking for, which is what we were mentioning before. Minimize the need to type or text search. Whenever possible, allow voice input, autocomplete text fields, and present browsable interfaces. This is really um, a way to take everyone into account when it comes to browsing or search engines. But these are just a few of the key tips to keep in mind. I encourage you to take a look into all of them. Particularly, I like how Google tackles this topic. They have incredible rich articles explaining different sides of it and exploring all areas. And it's a wide topic, but it's good to see that these big influential companies are actually taking the time now to change things for the better and really focus on their users, no matter where they are or who they are. Yeah, that's great to see that that Google are um, pushing forward these efforts so much and creating resources for other designers. Um, yeah, and you, you definitely gave a lot of really great recommendations for other designers there, so thank you. And then just to finish off, I want to go to when you mentioned about the current circumstances and how important it is to keep up to date, you know, with what's going on around the world and how that impacts UX. Are there any ways that you as a UX designer have seen the pandemic impact the field as a whole since it started? Obviously, there are a lot more people using digital platforms now than before as more and more people are working remotely. Yeah, I just wanted to know if you have any insights in, in that area. Completely. I mean, just to start, uh, we have basically nowadays in every country suffering the pandemic an app that is supporting somehow this this issue and trying to help the governments, you know, um, to define how big is the the ratio of, of contagion. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, Nowadays, uh, absolutely every tra public transport company is going to have to transform in order to comply to government regulations. This means that they are mostly having less capacity available on whatever their transport is, bus, train, or we have seen it with, with airline companies. They are still not operating normally, but once they do, everything will change and everything takes an impact on the product, digital products, and mainly uh, now because everything is done in remotely when things get harder, right? Uh, we are not at the point where everyone is, is walking freely and everything is back to normal. Uh, we are at the point where we are doing as much remote work and tasks as possible to reduce the social interaction, right? And this is an actual restriction that we have to comply to and companies have to comply to in order to keep operating. So there is going to be a huge transformation. And I think absolutely every person has seen it if they have children at home who are studying because education has depended absolutely entirely on internet connection and tools that support the fact that the kids can still get their lessons, they can still get evaluated 
but it's not through a person in front of them anymore. It's a lot harder. They need to do it from home. They need to do it through a digital tool. And this digital tool needs to be interactively and from a usability point of view, really obvious for them into how they can achieve their goals in there like they used to do in the classroom. And mostly, I mean, we know some parents are really good in tech, but some aren't. So it means that these kids cannot be left out. This is again our responsibility to make everything as perfect as possible. So everything can keep going as normal as possible. And once again, it's, it's falling on our shoulders. So, um, but in a much stronger way, uh, I think what we are living now is just the beginning and slowly we're going to start have to transform absolutely every, every business model, how they work and their digital support. And basically to, to avoid a bigger problem in the future in regards to what a pandemic means and how to not make it worse. Yeah, I think that's definitely a, a good example that you gave about the like the different ed tech solutions that now are having to be used on a much bigger scale. I guess before the parents and the kids that would be using those would probably be the ones that were a little bit more tech savvy if they were yeah. taking the initiative to use online platforms for learning. But now that's not an option. Uh, that now, now that it's not an option to not be using those tools. So um, making sure that they're as user-friendly as possible for those that don't have the same level of familiarity with tech solutions is going to be really important. Completely. I mean, and I have a lot of teachers in my family and I know absolutely not uh, all the students were able to cope in this way because not all of them even had internet access which is something that we have to start thinking if it's not the most basic service we need right now in order to keep it going, you know, and for everyone to keep it going. And we need to be inclusive overall. This cannot depend on the monetary power of, of a person because as we always established, education needs to reach everyone, no matter their social status or economic, right? So this is just one part of this whole pandemic topic but it's also again a responsibility an ethical responsibility on our shoulders that we need to see all users out there and not just the ones that are ideal and easy for us to figure so inclusive design and accessible applications open the door for people across the globe to overcome barriers that prevent them from full participation with the tech that surrounds them so indeed, thoughtful apps might empower them towards leading more fully independent lives. So we need to make technology and products with user, with, uh, user experience uh, accessible for everyone, intuitive for everyone, and reachable overall. That no one has any barrier upon that they cannot uh, overcome and that we are making their lives harder than they were already are. So we need to really take this responsibility with us and try to make the world better, or, or at least to keep it going at this point, because that's something we, we, we are being rushed to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I completely agree. I think this work that you're doing and inclusive UX as a whole is so, so important in driving forward 
progress, especially when it comes to the level of digitization and transformation that's taking place at the moment. So um, yeah, Valentina, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, this was a really, really insightful interview. And um, yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. I am really glad that we actually uh, did this on the diversity month because it's really it comes to terms and the pandemic and everything is pushing us to to achieve this goal and to go towards this direction a lot faster that, than we might have thought before. So um, this is the moment to, to actually get radical and make our products accessible for absolutely everyone out there. And yeah, keep our eyes open. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's never been more relevant than it is right now. So thank you again for coming absolutely. on the show. No, thank you. And stay safe. <laughs> it was a pleasure. Once again, thank you to our sponsor, Publicize. Visit their website if you want to find out more about their PR for growth packages, their free resources, or even schedule a call. And for a limited time only, exclusive to Brains Bite Back listeners, you can receive an SEO assessment as part of your package for any tier of service at no extra charge with this special promotion. To find out more, visit publicize.co slash BBB. That's all for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening and we really hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in listening to more podcasts, head to sociable.co or follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. We love hearing what you thought of the show so don't hesitate to tweet us either at at the sociable. Bye.